five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. My guest today is Adam Gilmore, the founder and CEO of Gilmore Space Technologies, an Australian startup building launch vehicles, starting with a small satellite launcher. Adam's career as a managing director at Citibank was going just fine until Elon Musk came along with his ideas on how to lower the cost of sending payloads to space. Musk inspired Adam so much so that he left his nice job at Citibank to start his own rocket company. Now, the company is about to launch its first suborbital rocket, followed by plans to test a follow-on orbital launch vehicle. His story is one of perseverance, lots of hard work, and with no guarantee of success. Listen in. Welcome, Adam, to the Space Q podcast. Thank you very much. So before we talk about what you're doing with Gilmore Space Technologies, I noticed in your biography, you spent just over 20 years in the banking industry as a managing director for Citibank. How did you go from a career in banking to founding a rocket company? Well, it's a story that I tell often because I get asked that a lot. And um, I was in financial markets at Citibank. And when you're in financial markets, you're paying attention to what's going on in the world in all kinds of different industries. And you follow industries. You watch companies that rise and fall. And I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial streak in me. When I was at Citi, they let me uh, start businesses and build them. And I've always been a space fan, and I think the pivotal point in in my decision making was in 2004, when the X Prize was won, and I thought that was pretty cool. But what I thought was even cooler was when I found out that the investment into that um, project was around 20 million US dollars. And I always had in my mind until then that anything to do with space was in the billions not in the tens of millions. And it was a very impressive feat that you could build a um, jet-powered, high-altitude carrier aircraft and a hybrid rocket-powered space plane for $20 million. And I thought, great, that's in the realm of possibilities for me. So I started uh, trying to figure out how I'd get that much money, and I bought as many Citigroup shares as I could. And then the financial markets crisis came, so I lost all of that, and then I had to start again, but I never gave up, and I reinvested in the bank stock and in other, other shares and properties, and I cobbled together enough money to start the company, and that's how it happened, and I did a tremendous amount of research from probably 2010 onwards, read so many books and, and NASA papers and lots of university papers and got a good understanding, and I think... Um, you know, what was good was I had a good business plan and I, you know, talked to some engineers in Australia and there were no rocket companies in Australia and there was some people that had experience but nowhere to go. So I showed them the way and we started from there. So you, you became a self-taught rocket engineer. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, my when I 
my company's mainly engineers and and they often ask me how how do we, how do you know so much and my answer to them is well you know how much did you learn at university in the lectures compared to how much did you learn by reading books and doing assignments and and getting your hands dirty and they they look at me with a knowing look on their face and they say okay i understand all right so uh, you can get there now um you also have a subsidiary in singapore uh why singapore well, Singapore was where I was living and working for about 20-something years, 22 years. And um, I wanted to see what I could do in Singapore um, because I knew the market well. I knew the people. I knew the government. Um, so I tried to give it a go in Singapore. But what we found out pretty quickly is there's not a lot of land up there to, to, to do rocket engine tests. So we started a business down in Australia um, – to do rocket engine tests and I think what naturally happens in a space company is the engineers can you know congregate around the test facility so we just got bigger and bigger in Australia and then it became a point where we said okay we've got to basically put everybody together so uh, in January this year we basically moved everybody that wanted to come down from Singapore we've got a very small operation still up there just finishing off some technology projects but we're pretty much all in uh, Australia now. All right. So it had nothing to do with trying to tap into financial markets or anything like that. No, not really. I mean, well, you know, we've gotten two rounds of venture capital, and most of that has come from Australian venture capitalists and a little bit from Singapore, but mainly from Australia. All right. We'll, we'll get to the venture capital in a minute. Um, and I'll, we'll also get to the uh, RL and Eris rockets in a second. But before we talk about that, I, I read that in February you unveiled the, the One Vision scaled version of your larger RL sound, sounding rocket. At the time, you said you had hoped to launch later that month. Um, it's been delayed. Is that strictly paperwork, or are there any other issues outstanding? No, it's mainly due to um, software. So we uh, were very ambitious on a fully automated software system. There's no launch site uh, in Australia, so we built a very uh, capable mobile launch platform and had the idea uh, of fully automating the loading and launching sequence, um, including all of the safety aspects. So what, we've, what we have made, and we're almost finished testing, is a fully autonomous um, launch system um, that not only does all the uh, filling of the fuel and the pressurization systems, but has multiple uh, safety features and tests that are done and if something goes wrong an automatic response to put it into a safe zone so that's taking a lot longer to commission than we uh, envisaged but it's been going along smoothly just longer than we thought we're almost at the end of it now so we're not too far away from launching the hardware was finished in uh, in february it's the software that's that's taken a longer time than we thought well, with rocket launches, delays are commonplace still, especially for new projects. It it just takes time to get these things to where you want them to, to be. So while uh, failure is not an unusual for the launch of a new rocket, should your scaled version uh, One Vision fail on its uh, first launch, do you have another one ready for flight? And if not, how long before you're, you'd be ready to fly again? 
We don't have another one ready. We, um, you know, the design of this One Vision rocket started about two years ago. And in the last two years, we've been doing a lot of testing of different components and and um, realized that a lot of the early decision making was okay, but there's a better way of doing it. So we're in the middle of designing our, um, or finishing the design of our orbital vehicle and we've made substantial changes to to the one vision we're keeping a lot of the technology but we we, you know we're improving a lot of it so um we don't really plan to make another one if it fails um but we plan to then just continue on with the subsystem testing and doing our full duration engine tests of our of our rocket motors all right so uh that then brings me to the next two rockets that you're developing, uh, the Ariel and the Eris. Uh, Ariel is your suborbital sounding rocket. Uh, tell me a, a little bit about it. Okay, so that, that rocket is basically just going to be a rocket that has, you know, one of the engines off of our orbital vehicle in it, um, and it's pressure fed, so reasonably simple. And it's just going to be used for uh, scientific purposes. Uh, we're talking to some parties that are interested in doing uh, space system testing. Uh, a lot cheaper than it is to throw something up in an orbital vehicle. Um, but you know, most of the demand for space services that we're seeing is coming from orbital vehicles, not suborbital vehicles. Yeah. And so um, you're, you're, you're following a well-worn path of developing, you know, doing it in stages. Um, so the Ariel rocket's going to be developed, and it's using uh, the same engine that you're going to use for Eris. Um, so tell me about Eris, because it's a, it's a little bit unusual uh, in terms of um, – Rockets. It's got three stages, uh, and a lot of the rockets these days seem to be uh, using two stages. Uh, so you've got three stages, but you're you're also seem to be looking like you're you're following, if if I can say it this way, a little bit of the SpaceX model, where you've developed the one engine, you're using it for the for the first stage, you're using it for the second stage, and you're using it for the thir- third stage. So tell me a little bit about uh, Eris and and why it's unique. Well, it's um, we are following the SpaceX model. I think it's a fantastic uh, idea, and it worked very well for them. Um, you know, our big difference is we don't use a bi- uh, biprop liquid engine; we use a hybrid rocket motor. And you know, we we did a lot of research on you know what was the big cost in in rockets, and engines was a big cost. And um, we noticed that. You know, a lot of universities were using uh, hybrid rocket engines, and we wondered why. And we talked to some universities, and they said one of the big things is the safety. So you can work on a rocket engine, and you can test a rocket engine that's a hybrid rocket engine reasonably safety because the the fuel and the oxidizer are two different phases of matter. So very hard for them to combine together and detonate. It was virtually impossible. Uh, so, you know, safety was a big big factor in our decision making and um and we've had a good experience with hybrids you know we've we've had very stable combustion in our engines we've been out of scale up very well you know we've gone from 2,000 newtons to 80,000 newton engines over two years without um 
we've had a lot of issues. So, um, you know, we, we, we still love hybrid rocket motors. It does seem that some a lot of the new startups are actually trying to do uh, hybrid rocket motors as well. Are there any trade-offs in in in, in using a hybrid rock, rocket? Does it uh, the motors? Does it uh, does it add any extra cost or? We think it's uh, we think it's cheaper. It doesn't have the same functionality as a biprop, but it's close enough. And um, you know, we think that. The, the performance difference between a hybrid and a, and a liquid isn't enough to, to justify the extra development time in developing bi-prop liquid engines. So now in terms of cost, um, your website estimates a price of US 25 to 25,000 to 38,000 per kilogram for the uh, Eris. Um, if I'm correctly, that puts you at around US 15.2 million for the, the largest payload that you'll, you'd be able to carry on that. Um, do you think uh, that will be a competitive enough price? Oh, yes. Yeah, so look, there's, there's two different prices that you hear in the market. You know, there's an um, there's overall vehicle cost. So our big vehicle is going to cost around 10 million if you buy the whole vehicle. And then there's, there's a sub segment of that where if you're not buying the whole rocket and you want to buy like a ride share, then that's a different market price. And the market standard for that is around fifty to seventy thousand dollars a kilogram. So when we're talking twenty five to thirty eight, that is for smaller segments of a rocket and not for the whole rocket. Ah, okay. Now, um, I think I read somewhere that you also have some plans for, and these are longer-term plans, for a human-rated vehicle. Uh, mm. Have you actually started to work on a design for that yet? And do you have a, a, a notional time frame when you'd, when you'd like to see this developed and, and, and ready by? Well, we've done some initial designs. I, you know, I have more of an aspirational time than a realistic one. I think we're very focused on developing a vehicle that takes satellites up into space, and that's where we see the main revenue opportunity. Um, so, you know, I'd like – I mean, a target that I have aspiration is eight to ten years. But, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be realistic on that because – there's no point us, you know, the vehicle we're looking at would take, you know, five to seven people. And if Elon gets what he wants to do and can take 100 to 150 people at a time into space, I don't think there's going to be a lot of necessity for us to develop a different vehicle. But what we do think is a long-term market is for cargo, for cargo delivery to, you know, moon, Mars, orbits, surface. So that's the other thing we'll be looking at in the longer term. Yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about numbers. In late September of last year, you closed your Series B uh, financing, raising uh, $18 million Australian. So in your two rounds, you've raised about, and I'll put this in US dollars for, for our listeners, uh, $17 million, I believe, to date. Um, you're looking to make your first commercial launch around the fourth quarter of 2020, about a year and a half from now, are you going to need to raise more funds to make that launch happen? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've pushed the launch date another year out. Um, we're actually been doing a bit of a redesign and we're going to increase the payload somewhat of the first vehicle. And 
We do plan to do one more raise sometime next year. We've actually think we've got enough money to last the next three years, but I want to accelerate the company. So after the One Vision launch and probably one more longer duration engine test, we'll look to raise some more money. It was kind of funny. It was I wouldn't call it easy to raise the last round of money, but you know, as soon as I raised the money, I had a whole lot of investors come and say, you know, can I invest now? Is it too late? And I said, yes, it is. So. We have a few investors that are kind of waiting for us to, to, to say we're going to raise some more money. Well, that's a good problem to have. <laughs> um, well, I just hope they don't evaporate next year when I come back to them. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So uh, now here's an interesting thing. Australia, you know, used to have a space agency. Um, because of a variety of factors, the agency was disbanded. Then last year, the agency was reconstituted, and it seems like uh, Australia is is on a strong path at this moment. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, with government support and uh, for both um, the civil and the uh, commercial sector. Um, but I also noticed that uh, Australia seems to be moving pretty fast on uh, regulations for uh, launches and, and returns. So they just opened up a consultation uh, for that uh, in the last week, I believe. Uh, and this is for the uh, Space Act of 2018. What are your thoughts on, on the consultation process and, and the draft rules so far? They're pretty good. You know, I mean, it's it's very easy to, to bash um, regulations, but, you know, in we've had a few reads of the of the uh the, the rules and they make a lot of sense. There's a little bits and pieces that we're going to make some comments on, on Friday when we meet the space agency. But, um, overall, I think, um, they've done a lot of good homework on this and they're not too prescriptive. So they're leaving themselves a bit of wiggle room to, you know, have a, have a look at each situation as it comes we have been talking to the space agency consistently from their formation and they do have a goal to be a very fast approver of launches, both for rockets and for satellites. Uh, it's one of their goals and we think that's a fantastic goal. And now you're based in Queensland. Um, is that the best place you think uh, to be located to launch out of Australia? Yeah, we think Queensland is the best place. I mean, there's parts that are towards the north of the state that can get all kinds of inclinations. Um, most of the inclinations that, you know, the customers that we've got letters of intent with are looking to launch from. So, um, yeah, we're, we're, you know, we're pushing the, the state government to, to do, to, to set up a launch site up there. We, we flew up the coast uh, earlier in the week to talk to some of the local council people and they were very positive about setting up a launch site. So we'll see how we go. Now, yeah, so that's right. You're, you're using a mobile launcher, which uh, does have some advantages to it. Um, but um, uh, do you think Australia, considering how large it is, uh, do you think it can support more than one, uh, let's say, spaceport? Yeah, I mean, it looks like there's one being being built in South Australia, that has a lot of uh, state government support and I think will get built. And that's going to predominantly be used for polar and sun sink orbits. And we would use it for polar and sun sink orbits. 
uh, when it comes up. Um, but it can't do equatorial type orbits or anything from like <clears throat> in 10 degrees to you know 60 degrees, and that's what the Queensland site can do. Right. Now, um, obviously, uh, as with any rocket company, you're going for an international market. Uh, but with respect to the domestic market in Australia, do you have any sense of how many domestic payloads you might have in, let's say, five years after you first launched? Um, well, there's, there's two satellite companies that are reasonably well-funded, Um that you know, one of them wants to put up more than the other one, but you know, one of them will give us enough business to to you know probably do one or two launches a year. The federal government is evaluating um, putting up satellites into Leo and Mio instead of Geo, and then there's the Defense Force that's looking for you know lots of different types of activities in space. Mainly related to you know reconnaissance and communications. Now, yeah, I was going to ask you about the Australian Defence Force. So, uh, you've had meetings with them. Uh, they're interested. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things where Australia is a little bit different from the United States. You know, in the United States, everybody thinks that America can do anything it wants, and it can. In Australia, there's a psychology that, you know, we're good at some things and not good at others. So, you know, the Defence Force for a long time has said, you know, we can do some things in Australia, but we don't know how to build rockets and we can't build stealth fighters. So when we first kind of started talking to them, they kind of were disbelieving that, you know, it was possible in Australia to build a rocket. But, you know, now they're starting to believe that it is and we've had some pretty senior people from Defence visit our factory, look at our rocket and they're – I think they're starting to believe that it's a possibility in Australia. And as that belief comes, then capability comes from that. And that's kind of what we're pushing for now. Now, one of the reasons why your company exists is because there's a revolution going on in small satellites where they're, uh, you know, literally uh, being launched by the dozens or more. Uh, these days, including last week, SpaceX launching its Starlink first batch of them of 60 satellites. Um, has the Australian government uh, clued in, seen the light of day about small satellites and and is interested in, in getting uh, some built for the country? They have. They have. It's just, you know, too slow for, for an entrepreneur like me. I think I'd like them to move a lot faster. I think they're definitely getting getting an idea that the space industry is here to stay and it's only going to grow and become bigger and bigger. Um, but, you know, they've been doing baby steps so far, little little bits of money here and there. And, uh, you know, we think they need to really step it up. Well, I have to tell you from a Canadian perspective, at least on the regulation side, you're ahead of us because the process for um, – modernizing our, uh, let's say, launch regulations is, is going to take years. Um, now, uh, although the Canadian government has finally, um, uh, I mean, they were interested in small sats well over 10 years ago, uh, but it's it's only now that they're really starting to, to do uh, uh, some more funding in that area. Um, with respect to what you're doing, is there anything that I've left out that you think we should cover? Um, what can I say? I think we, um, 
Yeah, we've, we've started to get a good team together. We've been hiring people from all over the world. Um, I've been surprised how interested people have been from big organizations to come to a small organization. I think people are very interested in getting their hands dirty and being involved in the decision-making process. So it's a pretty exciting time for the company now. And, um, yeah, I'm excited about the future. I'm looking forward to getting the One Vision rocket launched and then getting going on the orbital vehicle as fast as we can. Now, I've got uh, one last question. Um, you know, one of the things that's happening here in Canada is that at the university level, rocketry is just taking off. Um, are you seeing the same thing in Australia? Is rocketry at the university level really something that's uh, that people are interested in? Yes, absolutely. It's funny you mention that because it's become very popular in Australian universities. There was a very recent competition um, for a rocket competition that was done less than a month ago, and I think there was eight different university teams from around the country that participated, and uh, they did very, very well. You know, the rockets flew very well. They were very precise. They almost went to the altitude they were supposed to go. And a few of those teams came and visited our factory, and we're still in communication with them. So, yeah, I think this is something that's going to keep going. Now, was that the first uh, university uh, rocketry competition in Australia? It probably, it probably wasn't the first, but it was the first one that was very visible and had a lot of teams participating. I think it was like the first true one that we've seen. Okay, great. That's good to see. All right, well, Adam, uh, uh, it's early in the morning here, and it's late in the evening there. So uh, thank you for taking the time to do the podcast uh, with me. Uh, I hope uh, as you progress, we'll, we'll get you back on the show someday to, to see how your company's doing. That would be great, Mark. So thank you very much, and uh, my pleasure. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash we really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Queue. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.